Well, back in 1998, a long time ago for many of us, I was driving home from work when I was back in the supervising a construction project, and I was driving home from Morse Road one day, and the radio was on, and I heard this advertisement for this event at Ohio, the Ohio State University, and it was a debate that was going to take place, uh, put on by an organization called Veritas. Uh, they put on those kinds of events. And it was a debate on the resurrection of Yeshua. It was between a scholar, a believing scholar, you know, who believes that Yeshua rose from the dead, and then, of course, a non believing person, an atheist, and they were going to debate the resurrection. So I got on my phone, and I, of course I got home, and I said to Lucy, I said, you know, I really want to go to this. I want to see this. I know the guy, the believer who's going to debate, and I actually know a little bit about the atheist, so I really want to see this event. Well, then I got on the phone, I called Henry Goulet, and I said, let's go to this. I really want to go to this. Would you come with me? And so it ended up that uh, he and Marguerite and Lucy and I piled in a car, and we went down to Ohio State in the old Ohio State Union, and we watched the debate. And I know Henry and Marguerite remember that so well. It was 1998, and I know they remember every moment. But uh, anyway, uh, it, was that when I, it was when I was watching this debate that I said to myself, you know, I was sitting in the back and we were sitting there, I was like, you know, if Yeshua really rose from the dead, I mean, if he really rose, this is it. This is the linchpin of our faith. I mean, this is what makes Yeshua so different. I mean, if Yeshua rose from the dead, this is what validates his messianic claims that he has the authority to forgive sins, and he's the Son of God, and he's the Son of Man, and he's the Jewish Messiah, and he's the uh, Son of David, and just all the things that you read in the Gospels about Yeshua in the New Testament, I said to myself, this is really so important that uh, I, I just think it's such a great thing to uh, watch this being played out here and watch this debate. Naturally, of course, we walked away, and we all thought the believing scholar won. I mean, it was, I felt the, uh, the atheist did not do a good job, and of course, Henry and I agreed on that, and we were taking notes, you know, writing down what he said and everything. So I just walked away really encouraged, and uh, ever since that, that debate, it kind of like the resurrection is just always stuck on my radar screen ever since, and I've always tried to study it more, and I've taught some classes at MSI on it. Some of you have taken it. I know you remember everything about my classes, every single thing. But uh, it's just such an important topic. So, now as I said, of course, if Yeshua rose from the dead, he is different. Now, many people today, have you ever come across people who read the Gospels, uh, if you're talking to them about our faith or ever sharing the Messiah with them, you'll notice sometimes that this is what they'll say. They'll say, I really like you know, I really, I think Yeshua had some really good moral teachings. You know, he's a good moral teacher. I mean, his ethics are great, and he's got some good ethical teachings, but those miracle things, you know, I just can't buy those. I can't, I can't really believe a guy rose from the dead. I mean, how can you believe that? There's nobody rising from the dead today, right? We don't see resurrections all over the place. My response, that's why Yeshua is unique and different. He's the only one that rose from the dead. That's the whole point. But a lot of people just have a hard time with the miracles and the Gospels, and especially the resurrection. So I want to uh, start out by giving you just quickly three E's. I want you to remember E's, not Eric, uh, not, nothing to do with Eric or Elise. My daughter's name is Elise. But uh, three E's to remember. First and foremost, when we think of the resurrection Yeshua, of course this was the central claim of the early Messianic community. Yeshua had risen from the dead. But first and foremost, the claim was proclaimed very, very early. 
So the e, first E stands for early. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Of course, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. And Paul's letters are our earliest records that say anything about Yeshua's death and resurrection, not the Gospels. But uh, he says there in 1 Corinthians 15, he says in verse 1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, also you received, also in which you stand, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that the Messiah died for our sins according to the Scriptures, he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were, to one openly, ultimately born, he appeared to me also. So you notice here in verse uh, 3, the Paul says, I, it says here, I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, okay? Now, Paul says that word received. That means he received this creed, this little short message here about Yeshua's death and resurrection prior to writing this. That means he received this from somebody else at a different date. That means it goes back to before Paul. Paul didn't invent this. This is something that was going circulating in the early Messianic community, and Paul received this creed. There's a couple of things, ways he might have received it. He might have received it from Peter uh, when he went to Galatia in chapter 1. He went to visit Peter up there in uh, Galatians 1. Uh, he might have received it you know, somewhere around. We read what happened in the book of Acts. But uh, one way or the other, this is something, a message about Yeshua's death and resurrection that was circulating very early, okay? And Paul received this creed from somebody else. So uh, it's not something that, uh, you know, was invented 50, 60 years later. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15, dated, it's dated probably 50 to 55 AD, but this creed itself was before that. So the resurrection, uh, the event of the resurrection, the proclamation of it, the message was going around very, very early in the early Messianic community. Now, Paul has a couple other places he talks about the resurrection. I'm not going to turn there. I'm just going to read them to you. Uh, he says in 1 Thessalonians, uh, which is dated in 50 AD, he says here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, he says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Yeshua, who delivers us from the wrath to come. He also says in chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 14, for we do not want you to be informed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do not have hope. For since we believe that the Messiah died and rose again, even so through Yeshua, God will bring with them those who have fallen asleep. Then in Romans 1, uh, verses 1 to 5, dated 55 to 56 AD, of course he says here, Paul, a servant of Messiah Yeshua, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand, through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to flesh, declared to be son of God, in power according to the spirit by the holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. So Paul's letters are the earliest records we have for the resurrection, and they're very, very early. It's not something that came much later. The second E is empty tomb. Okay, we talked about 
Yeshua, the message was proclaimed early. The second E is empty tomb. The earliest polemic for Yeshua's resurrection, the empty tomb, was that the tomb was empty. And even the religious leaders at the time thought it was empty because they thought the disciples stole the body, right? They assumed that uh, the body was stolen. Remember, they didn't say, no, the tomb's not open. The, the uh, body's been, our tomb's not empty. They said the tomb is empty because the body's been stolen. So we need to understand, of course, the tomb was declared empty. And then the third E has to do with the eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Now, with all history, all history is in the past. We can't go revisit it. It's gone. It's uh, everything in the past and antiquity is gone. The only way we can reconstruct an event is through written documents, through eyewitness testimony, through archaeology, or through looking at an event that caused something to happen. And we may say, what caused the early birth of the Messianic community? And of course, we have to ask what caused that to happen. It is probably has to do with the resurrection was the, uh, the central event that got that movement going. But when it comes to eyewitness testimony, of course, the early witnesses proclaim Yeshua's death and resurrection. They thought it happened. Uh, they talked about how they seen the risen Messiah. Now, most people make up stories for three reasons. Uh, some people think that maybe they made it up. Well, Remember, people make up three uh, things for three reasons, for financial gain, for sexual reasons, and then power, okay? Financial gain, sexual gain, or power. I think we probably know, as you read through the New Testament, the disciples did not show any need for financial gain, sexual gain, or power, right? When Paul's saying he received those 39 lashes and getting beaten, I don't think he's getting any power, right? I don't think he's getting any financial gain, right? They are all uh, early, right, being persecuted from the start. No evidence that they gained any really financial resources or any sexual gain for proclaiming the resurrection. And remember, Jewish people knew, of course, everything had to be confirmed by two or more witnesses, right? Every event. You can't bear false witness. Everything has to be confirmed by two or more witnesses, so we have numerous appearances of Yeshua all throughout the New Testament, people seeing him. You have the 500 that Paul talks about. You have to Mary, you have to Paul, you have to James. You have these different areas, different locations, and they all proclaim that Yeshua had risen from the dead. Now, what, uh, what really accounts for what they saw there, what they actually saw with the risen Messiah? Well, uh, some scholars uh, think that uh, maybe they were just visions. You know, maybe the disciples had these visionary encounters of the risen Messiah. Well, that doesn't really work well because visions are things that are just inside your mind. Uh, it's something that's a subjective vision. It's just something psychological. But see, the disciples proclaimed that this was the Messiah out there. They saw him physically. They ate with him. They touched him. And they knew the difference between visions and resurrection. Now, one scholar here defines resurrection as the following. He says, their resurrection was a word which was already developed with a clear meaning. It referred to a physical raising back to life within this world of those whom God chose, the resurrection of the just on the last day. So when the disciples claim resur the resurrection for Yeshua, they were claiming that God had done for one man what they were expecting him to do for all his faithful people at the end of time, what Paul refers to as the hope of Israel in Acts 23, uh, verse 26. If they meant merely that Yeshua was a good fellow who did not deserve to die, and with those effect on whom people would surely continue bond as death, they would have used some other word. 
They would not have dared to use this word, that being resurrection, which meant one thing and one thing, God's act of raising from physical death. That is what they meant, and that is what they would have, that is what have been heard to me, it would have been heard to me. So they picked resurrection as a category for a very specific reason, because Yeshua had bodily risen to them. They also could have talked about maybe Yeshua was like a ghost, right? Maybe in the, uh, the ancient world, they believed if people died, maybe you have a ghost appearance of some kind. Uh, but that's not what happened there, because Yeshua said, touch my body. I'm not a ghost. I'm a flesh and blood. So they had other categories to pick from, but they stuck with the resurrection category, because that is exactly what happened to them when they saw Yeshua rise from the dead. Now, we read here in our Siddur, if you have your Siddur right there on page uh, in front of you, turn to page 81, because we, we have this right here every week. We might just skip over it sometimes. But if you look at the bottom of page 81, we have a passage here that's linked with the Shema for a very specific reason. But right next, next page over on page 80 is the Shema. But uh, you, and on page 81, I'm sorry. And if you go down the bottom of page 81 here, there's a text here from 1 Corinthians 8, 4 to 6. It says here, For we know that an idol is nothing in the world, that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there's only one God, the Father, from whom are all things for for we for him and one Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, through whom are all things, from whom we live. It's very interesting that Yeshua, very quickly after the resurrection, is given the title Lord, right? Of course, he was called Lord before that, but the point is, though, that Paul is taking the Shema, which he'd been raised on his whole life, and now he's saying, there's one God, one Lord, but now there's one Lord, Yeshua, the Messiah, Right? There's a transformation in the early disciples' understanding of Yeshua's deity, right? He was proclaimed deity from the very start of the early Messianic movement. This transformation took place because of his resurrection, okay? So I just wanted you to be uh, aware of some of the apologetic issues with the resurrection, some of the historical issues, but I'm not going to spend my whole time talking about giving an apologetic. I gave you a little brief background there. Because I want to spend a little more time talking about what the resurrection means to us, uh, what it means to us today. Um, you know, I, uh, the more I studied the resurrection over the years, I began to be convicted about whether I was really living the resurrected life. <laughs> because even though you have all the facts historically, unless Yeshua is transforming you, unless you're allowing Yeshua to transform you via his resurrection because we're raised up with him, then you know, maybe uh, won't do any good, right, just to have the uh, historical facts. So the way I see Yeshua today, what he means to us is three things. He gives us a new mission, a new authority, and a new identity. Look at Matthew chapter 28, at the end of Matthew here. Now, Yeshua came to Israel as the ideal representative of his people. He came into Israel to help restore Israel, to help them be everything they called to be, to a light to the nations, to be... Uh, everything that uh, we read about in the Jewish scriptures that Israel was called to be. And we read back earlier, Matthew, that Yeshua told his disciples, in Matthew 10 specifically, only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, proclaim the gospel only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, right? He said in Matthew 15 to the woman there, he says, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel because Yeshua's calling, of course, is to Israel 
to help them be everything they're supposed to be, okay? You can't divorce the Messiah's work from Israel. It's disastrous, okay? That's why if you don't have a theology of Israel from Genesis to Revelation, you're never going to understand the Messiah's work. But we come to the end of Matthew 28. He says here in verse 16, he says here, but then the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Yeshua had designated. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. And Yeshua came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, make Talmudim, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I commanded you, and I'm with you even to the end of the age. So by the end of Matthew, Yeshua is telling his disciples to now go to the nations, right? Because really, uh, in Messianic understanding, you see, when the end has come, Israel is being restored and the Gentiles are coming in. As Gentile inclusion, Israel is being restored together. Those two things go hand in hand, right? And so naturally, when the Messiah comes, he goes to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But then by the end of Matthew, he's telling his disciples to go now to the rest of the nations, right? To go proclaim this message to the nations. And so I wanted you to see here when he talks about this issue of authority. You know, when Yeshua rose from the dead, this is after the resurrection, he now is giving this authority. He has the authority, but he's giving this to his disciples. And he's saying, go. Now, sometimes we read this text and we may think to ourselves, it just means to go somewhere overseas, it just means to move, it means to go to Indonesia or China or Israel. But really, uh, what we may want to say, as some scholars say, it's as you go, okay? As you go in your daily life, wherever you are, in your surroundings, in your work environment, your community, go and make disciples, okay? But the point is, though, Yeshua is the risen Lord has given us authority to do that. He has the authority to give that to us because he is the Lord, the Lord of the universe and the Lord of the world. And what he begins to do is exert his lordship over us in our daily walk, right? And one of his callings to us is to go and make disciples, make Talmudim. So we have a new mission Continuation, continued mission of the, uh, the Jewish scriptures, but of course we have this new authority. So wherever you're going out into the world today, remember Yeshua is with you. He does not leave you. He gives you the authority, okay? You're not on your own, all right? You know, I was just reading recently about um, some of the uh, brothers and sisters we have who are being uh, slaughtered in other parts of the world, uh, reading about various things that are taking place. And of course, it's quite horrific, but uh, we need to remember that we have so many people around us that are being persecuted for their faith, right? I know I take it for granted. I, I do it all the time. But we have people all across the world who are claiming Yeshua and, and paying the cost for it, right? So we need to be praying for them on a regular basis as they take the message of Yeshua everywhere, all right? Now, this issue of uh, new identity and new authority, we have the authority, the mission, this new identity I want to talk about. Recently, I was teaching the teens a few weeks back. I should say a few weeks back, I was teaching the teens, and we were talking about our identity in the Lord. And I talked about, you know, I said, well, it's about who you are. Who are you? You know, we talked about who you are, where you're going, what's your destiny. And so we talked about our identity in the Lord. And then I said to, one, I said to him, how about you go into your school on Monday and go up to your friends and ask them and say, who are you? What's your identity? And one of them said, I'm going to do that. I'm going to ask all my friends in school what their identity is and who are they. And I said, if you do that, actually, literally, if you take my words literally, you'll be in the principal's office by the end of the day. 
I said, and they'll be asking you, why are you walking up to your friends and asking them, who are you? Uh, what's your identity in? Obviously, you're going to get yourself in a little trouble. So I was kind of being metaphorical with that, not quite literal. So I don't think they went ahead and did that. But uh, anyway, glad we clarified that issue. But, uh, you know, in Luke 9, 23, Yeshua says to his disciples, if anyone wishes to follow me, he needs to uh, deny himself, uh, take up his execution stake, and follow me daily. And when Yeshua said that to his disciples, they knew what that meant, because the, uh, the execution stake in that culture was not a pleasant thing to see, right? To see Yeshua on that stake, being crucified, being neglected, being embarrassed. They knew that when Yeshua said that, that meant self-denial, embarrassment, misunderstanding, shame, all those things. But we have a new identity in the Messiah. We come to faith, we come to identifying his death and resurrection. Wherever, wherever we go, we're in him and he is in us. Now, something that prevents us from understanding that identity is what we call idolatry, something that uh, we need to remember regularly. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, the author Tim Keller defines idolatry as this. He said, idolatry is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I know I will have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe the kinds of relationships to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. So basically, Tim Keller talks about these different kinds of idols we have as believers. Because you see, even though we know it intellectually, we're identified in the Lord, the culture just fights against that, right? We just get absorbed into the culture, and the culture is always sucking us in, and we always have to fight to remember our identity in the Messiah. Some of these idols that uh, Keller mentions, I think we're all probably have to, uh, we all probably have to be aware of, and we have to regularly examine ourselves. One of them, of course, is called the approval idol. The, uh, the person that has to get approval continuously uh, is uh, their identities wrapped up in people approving of them all the time. They need affirmation. They need approval. Uh, another idol is uh, called, the, uh, of course, the career idol, the work idol. That's where I identity is just wrapped up in our job or career, right? We're just absolutely immersed in that. And, of course, Tim's, you know, Keller's not saying you don't work or have a job. He's just saying that basically we have to be careful about what our identity is in. Another idolatry, of course, is the achievement idolatry. That has to do a little bit with approval where... We just have to achieve and achieve and achieve, right, to get approval. So we're just consumed with achieving. We just achieve all the time, focused on achieving. Another idol, of course, is the uh, materialism idol. I know that that's a tough one. But uh, in our culture, we know that most people find their identity in what they have, right? It's where you live. It's what you have, how much you have, your toys, everything, your possessions. And we find our identity in that. Uh, another idol is, he says here, is relationship idolatry, where we find our identity in somebody else and what they think of us. Perhaps it's a person of the opposite sex. They need to accept us. And because we can't find our identity in the Lord, we have to find our identity in that person and what they think of us, and they need to accept us. Another idol he mentions is one of the most famous ones. 
feel like I'm Bob Barker on that show. Come on down. Name your idol. Um, anyway, uh, come on down. Bring your idol forward. Uh, another one is called political idolatry, of course, where we are just absolutely immersed in the politics of the day, and we think the politics are going to fix all the problems of our culture. And we can't get along with other believers because they don't have the same political views as we do, and we just argue and fight all the time. So that's political idolatry. Then lastly, he talks about image idolatry. Of course, how we look. You know, we're just consumed with uh, how we look in our body image continuously. So these are idols that are out in the culture, and they rub off on us as believers, right? And so how do we fight against this? You know, uh, Yeshua rose from the dead, and we should understand that, but turn to uh, Colossians uh, chapter 3 for a minute. I'm sorry, Colossians 2. Colossians chapter 2, of course, Paul is writing to a, a group of people here that were struggling with Gnosticism, and they were wrapped up in this uh, secret knowledge of Messiah and all these things. They were going off track, and Paul was trying to get them to remember their identity in the Messiah, that they're rooted in him. And he says here in Colossians 2, verses... Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read verses 6 to 13. He says here in verse 6, As you therefore have received the Messiah, the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Messiah, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. He is the head over all rule and authority. And you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Messiah, having therefore buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, and he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us. He's taken out of the way, having nailed it to the to the execution stake. So Paul is trying to drive home to these, these believers in this uh, particular congregation that they've been raised up with the Messiah, they're identified with the Messiah, right? When he died 2,000 years ago, we died with him, or 2,000, a little more. When we rose with him, we rose with him, right? Our identity is in him. So one of the clear, one of the most obvious ways to fight against these idols, which we all have to fight against, by the way, including me, is that uh, we need to regularly meditate and remind ourselves of what the Bible says about us. And that means... When we don't feel like we're identified in the Messiah, we don't have those emotional highs or however feeling one day, we need to stick with the objective word of God and what it says about us regularly, right? And meditate on it. Now, Paul also says here in Colossians 3, verses 1 to 5, go over one chapter over, he says here, chapter 3, if then you've been raised up with the Messiah... Keep seeking the things above where the Messiah is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with the Messiah in God. When Messiah, who is our life, is revealed, then you also be revealed with him in glory. 
Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come, and in them you once also walked when you're living in them, but now put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, sin, abuse of speech from your mouth, etc. Really the reason people have struggled with these idols out in the culture, which obviously people don't know the Lord, they struggle with these, but sometimes we do as well, everybody's trying to get back to the garden. They're trying to get back to the garden, right? Because God created us to be secure in Him, to find our identity in Him, we're image bearers, but people are just trying to always find that security, right? And it only can be found in the Lord, right? Because God never changes. His love for us is not conditional. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. And of course, Yeshua is the same today, yesterday, and today and forever as well. Now, another safeguard against this idolatry issue, I'm going to read uh, one last text here. Just uh, take go to Ephesians. We'll talk about Ephesians 4. There's another safeguard here we can uh, guard against this, is Ephesians 4, verses 9 to 16. So Paul says here, you know, I'm going to go ahead and uh, read verse 1. Sorry, starting in verse 1. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, treat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, which you've been called, which all, in all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, there's one body and one spirit, just as you're also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Lord and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Messiah's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lowest parts of the earth, the lower parts of the earth? He who descended himself is also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Messiah, until we are all to attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Messiah. As a result, we are no longer to be children." tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, and by the trickery of men, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into all aspects, into him who is the head, even the Messiah, from whom the whole body, being fit and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So you notice here that Paul talks about uh, this context of these, uh, the Messiah has given gifts, right? He's given gifts to the body. These people who have, all of us have gifts, but he's given certain people equipping uh, grace to equip others, right? And when we are doing this and the body is functioning in a healthy manner, people will be, the goal obviously is maturity in the Messiah, and people will be built up into their faith. People will be built up into the Messiah, because he says here in the end, he talks about this here, the goal is that we're made mature in the Messiah. And three things that get guarded against. One, people are not taken in by gullibility. They're not taken in by instability. They're not taken in with uh, false doctrine. They're not tossed here and there. They're not uh, finding the uh, latest fix to help to be uh, like a fad to become more spiritual. The goal is that through proper teaching, 
and the equipping that people find their identity in the Messiah and their build up in Him and look to Him as the head. And they understand they're complete in Him. So when we do that, and it's happening regularly, we probably will have a little more victory over these idols in our lives. You know, I just want to mention something about these idols that Keller mentioned. You know, uh, they're not going away, obviously. They're all around us. But uh, think about this. You know, if you uh, fall into the approval idol, you know, always looking for approval of others, uh, eventually you're not going to get approved, right? Someone's going to disapprove of what you did or who you are or something. And uh, obviously your job can change your career. You know, we lose jobs and many of us may have five or six career changes in our lives. We're always being, you know, changed in that area. Some things can happen. Uh, relationships obviously can fall apart. We know people don't necessarily accept us, and we may lose a relationship. And of course, politics is a mess as it is. I'm not going to go into that. But the point is, though, that uh, we have to work daily at finding our identity in the Messiah. It's work, but it's worth it, right? Because He's risen. It's true. We're identified in Him. We can claim our position in the Lord every single day, say to the Lord, remind me of who I am in Yeshua on a moment-by-moment basis because these other things, they're just going to be fading away, right? They're just around us all the time. We're going to be fighting against that. So as we close, I just want to remind you of three things, a few things. First of all, the resurrection is definitely rooted in history. There's good evidence for it. It's not just your opinion. It's not my opinion. I think it really happened. Obviously, there's good evidence for it. If you want to take our MSI class, there's more on that. But most importantly, we want to apply what's happened with the resurrection. Yeshua rose, we rose with him. We're identified in him, we're raised with him. We're new creations in the Messiah. Our identity is in him and he's in us. And as we walk out of here today, remember, we have authority in the Messiah. Yeshua has given us authority to proclaim the message to the nations, to make disciples, and he is with us till the end of the age, right? So having said that, let's go out of here with a new understanding of our mission, calling, and identity, and let's walk out here living in victory and our identity in the Messiah. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you so much for the fact that you rose Yeshua from the dead, that he is risen, and we're raised too. Actually, we're raised right now with him, and that we have authority in him, that he is in us and that we're in him. And that your spirit is the one who empowers us as we go out of here to share the message of the risen Messiah. We pray, Lord God, that we would be able to help people find their identity in the Messiah because we are created to be in relationship with you. Help us to take that message to others and help us to find our own identity in you on a regular basis, Lord. When those idols are caving in on us, help us to reclaim our position identity in you on a regular basis because we know we'll have to fight this uh, until the day we go home to be with you. And we thank you most of all for the Messiah who came into this world, who died and rose from the dead in our behalf. May we apply this in our lives. We pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen.